In fiction, a plot is the sequence of connected events that make up a narrative. I say connected in that these events are not random things that arbitrarily happen. There's a relationship between them, usually a causative one. A happens, so B happens, so C happens, and as a result, D happens, etc. Generally, a plot in fiction leads up to a climax that answers a central question or resolves a central conflict. Unless you're writing really experimental fiction, your story has a plot in it. Narrative works have a plot. If you want to be a fiction writer, it is a good idea to understand how to structure a good, engaging, well-paced plot. However, many writers overemphasize the importance of plot. They focus on plot so much that they forget about everything else. In this episode of Write Good, we are joined once again by Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez, who is going to tell us why plot isn't everything. Thank you for joining us for the very first time to record. <laughs> we definitely did not have technical difficulties before. This is this is the super uniquely our first recording session on this particular topic. <laughs> this is, in fact, the first time we are recording this episode. I have been instructed to tell you this by our right good legal. Oh, wait, I wasn't supposed to read that last part. Sorry. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. I was going to welcome myself back. Uh, that's how that's how off the cuff this is going to be. But yeah, yeah. Like, w thanks for having me back. Let's talk about vibes. And uh, I just want to get this off my chest. You know, fuck free tax pyramid. Yeah. Fuck yeah. that guy. And, and, and saving the cat. Let, let the cat figure it out. Yeah, let the cat save himself. That's see, that's liberation cat theory. Yeah, when you save a cat, you save him for a day. But when you teach a cat to save <laughs> himself, you save him for a lifetime. At least nine lifetimes, from what yeah. I understand. God saves cats who save themselves. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> yeah, the Bible so, is vibes only. <laughs> the Bible is a lot of vibes. There's a lot of vibes. So let's start by talking a little bit about the problem with a plot-centered approach to writing. And we want to say off the bat that it is good to understand plot. It, it's fine. When you're a newbie writer, especially, you're probably meandering a lot. You're having trouble cutting stuff that needs to be cut. So you end up getting a lot of advice, which for you at that stage is very solid. Like, hey, this doesn't serve the plot. Maybe you need to cut this. But like that drunken white advice about omitting needless words, never using adjectives, shunning the passive voice, people take it way too far and they forget about things like character or mood or setting or theme and so on. And we end up with this emaciated work of literature. You start becoming ruthless about cutting everything that doesn't serve this central capital P plot. Yeah, I mean... I think one of the things and one of the mistakes that when you're starting and perhaps as you continue, right, you have to sort of get to a point where you understand what you want to say whenever you sit down to write or create art or what have you. And one of the problems is that you take these, like the, the Strunken White one is very funny because if you wanted to take that to its absurd, illogical conclusion, he's like, well, don't write needless words. None of these words are needed. <laughs> like art is not necessary. So I will, I will turn in a blank page. This is my plot. This, these are my vibes right here, but no, these are all tools to be used or put aside as is needed. And, and I think part of what 
I think you're you're driving at is that you have to learn to a certain extent what the rules are before you start really deviating from them and figuring out ways where you can deviate from them. Right. And inject those plots or, or those vibes into that plot so that it feels a little bit more fleshed out or the world feels more real. Right, right. It's kind of like you got to learn how to walk before you learn how to dance. You know, walk, you put one foot in front of the other. But after a while, one foot in front of the other doesn't work as as advice when you're learning how to dance. It's yeah, not you, one you, foot in front of the other every single time. It's foot goes to the side or behind or, or you kick it or something. Yeah. I mean, once, once you've moved on to dancing 201 uh, salsa, yeah, that's one foot in front of the other is fine elements to build upon to get to salsa or whatever the other dance is exactly. Right. Right. And we want to stress too, that there are certain genres, there are certain modes of writing that are very plot centered and centered on a very particular type of plot and a very particular plot structure. Airport thrillers are very, very plot driven. The vibes aren't super important. It's It just tends to be, okay, we need a fast paced plot with twists at this part, this part, this part, this part, this part. Here's the main plot. Here's the subplot. And the twist goes there. And if you actually look at the way these thrillers are structured, it, there's a very specific page range in which here's the subplot twist. And now the main plot's twist is going to happen on page 67. And it, like it, they've really got it down specifically. And that's okay for that mode of writing, but there are other ways to tell a story. Yeah. It's weird because especially like those, what we call airport thrillers or beach reads, all are, you're saying they're very formulaic. They do actually follow like a very specific type of formula. And it's only the, the deviations from that formula that make those stand out. I mean, yeah. look, at, look at how awful a writer Dan Brown is and how much that motherfucker sold. This is the big, this is the final boss of, of all of our conversation, I feel. It's the profit motive of capitalism, but we right. can save that for a little bit. Right. And and if you're, if you are churning things out just to sell, then like this advice probably won't be for you. But I think the problem is that people get stuck into this mode of here's how you're supposed to write a story because this is a story that's very lucrative. But mm. that might it might not be your goal to move a certain number of units. And we often end up confusing, well, here's a good way to write a marketable book versus here's a book that's going to be really, really good, maybe not necessarily as profitable. Yeah. Part of the, I feel like if we can talk a little bit about how plot can be, it can end up feeling like your characters are doing things for contrived reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Your characters start becoming like objects dragged around by events mm -hmm. almost like, well, this has to happen. So this is your character's got to go there. Like, oh, okay. I mean, yeah, again, I, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to invoke Dan Brown. It, it honestly feels, and that, that is part of the that thriller idea that you have to have the cat and mouse game is required, but then like to a certain extent, if the cat and mouse game is incinerating papal candidates in, in, in Rome or, you know, blowing up buildings, uh, it, it sort of feels like, wait, hold on. Uh, couldn't they have just 
when you get to the end and you f- figure out that it was somebody that was very close to everyone, you're like, well, couldn't they have figured that out a little earlier, given the degree of of problems and like mayhem that this person caused? Anyway, m- maybe that's yeah. me. Uh, d- yeah, you know, that maybe that's just me, but I do know that there are people that sort of accept it and shrug and, and keep reading. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, these are books that are, they're called airport reads for a reason, because that's what your brain wants when you're on an airplane. You don't necessarily want a work that's particularly deep or challenging. You want something that's kind of fun to pass the time because you're sitting in coach and your feet hurt and your knees hurt. And that's fine for that. But my problem is people take that and forget that there's other ways to write. And that that's my problem where this one approach, this very commercially viable approach like swallows or pushes out every other approach. And that's what I find upsetting. Yeah. I mean, um, to, to really talk about how that breakneck pace just becomes very, it becomes very wearying as a reader, right? After a while, I, I, like you, if it's just wall to wall action all the time, you're like, well, hold on. So how is anyone going to sit back and try to plan anything? Because mm-hmm. the funny, the, the funny thing is that you start noticing that when you have become a little bit weary of the breakneck pace of something, I, I've mm-hmm. had that happen. Like I've had that happen where I'm like, this is sufficiently well-written, but I, you know, it's been like seven chapters and it's just been action, action, action. Nothing stops. It's just like one hook after another. And I'm exhausted just reading this. Right. You know, and you got, I put it down and sometimes I, I never come back because it's, it's sort of like a weird imbalance. There's mm-hmm. no, no time to breathe. There's none of that negative space. None of that. Ma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we can circle back to, I, I really love, I'm sure it's not, Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki did not come up with this. I think it's part of the the tradition uh, of storytelling in Japan, but I know that he was the one that introduced me to that concept. And suddenly you have a, a, a name for something that, you know, honestly, if we can stray into sort of like anime and audiovisual shows and, and, and series and whatnot, there's a lot of stuff that if it's not like, something like Naruto or, or Dragon Ball Z, no shade to those. That's, they got their audiences, but it's, it's not like 15 episodes of the same fight or whatever. Generally speaking, those other ones generally have some moments, these quiet moments where it's a scene of the countryside to sort of almost as an establishing shot, but it's held just a moment longer than it should. Yeah, it's like breathing room or something. You just get a exactly. moment to catch your breath. Here's yeah. a here's a shot of some wind running through the grass. Yeah, there it exactly. Is. I remember pointing out on a on a very viral tweet that I had about the the scene in Spirited Away where she's on the train and she's she's still she's not really talking. There's nothing happening. She is in literal movement, literal movement as well as sort of like you you assume sort of mental movement. You can tell that from the way she's drawn and postured and all that stuff, that she's thinking about things. And oddly, it's also a moment in the movie where everything slows down and you as a viewer, uh, as part of the audience, can also mull over exactly what's happened up until that point. 
it's this really important time to decompress too, because she's switching modes. She's switching from this bathhouse to this this witch's hut out in the forest. She's just we're changing the rhythm of of this story. We're changing the pace, setting, mood, and it's like she, okay, let's take a moment to change. She got a change side gears. Quest. <laughs> yeah, she got a little side quest. And, yeah, this is but, the loading screen or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's funny because I keep on wondering if it's a combination of too much, too many people watching movies and shows and also this idea like the JRPGs or, or even just regular computer RPGs of some sort where you have fast travel. And so all those like you walking around is not something that happens unless you're a specific type of game. You can just go to the map screen. Okay, I'm gonna go to this dot. Okay, bye, and you show up at the at the new place rather than travel there. Yeah, I can kind of see that a little bit, and I think part of it too is just we're we're going from movies and we're kind of going from trash movies that are really really based on like just propel everything forward. We're going based on a very narrow idea of plot that again that fucking save the cat style three-act structure mm-hmm. this is our only understanding of plot and we try to cram every kind of story into it and that's not every story needs to be that i invoked free tags pyramid which has the um what is it the rise climax and the fall and even there that feels like it's the three-act structure in and of itself generally speaking there are two points at the ends right before the beginning is the introduction. So there is some time to establish whatever it is. And then the end end is catastrophe. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> like, I, I don't know that it's supposed to be, mean that it ends badly, but definitely right. something something happens at the end that is not expected or not intended. Yeah. Uh, it it feels like the the those types of endings of uh, horror movies where suddenly at the last moment the hand of the slasher shows up on screen to grab the axe right again right <laughs> yeah but the, but this hyper focus on plot and a very narrow understanding of plot it almost becomes tyrannous in a way like we have to cut everything that doesn't serve the plot because then we start ending up with really bad discourse like a lot of bad sex scene discourse is like mm. well does that sex scene advance the plot no maybe it probably doesn't but it's revealing a lot about the characters and their relationships with each other no it's not essential to the plot but <laughs> it's a part of people's lives yeah, just like showing people eating or cooking or anything that people like to do. I mean, it's do you have to show them walking to the place? No, no, not really, but maybe. Yeah, and, again, and again, it's so funny that people will talk about, we got to cut this sex scene. It doesn't serve the plot, but then they'll be the ones who show the montage of like, oh, I love how food looks in Miyazaki movies. Like, well, <laughs> it's not serving the plot to show someone cooking eggs, but it's it's nice. It's It's nice. I like watching it. I mean, I think that it's it's very simply that everyone likes to eat, but sex might be icky or makes you feel icky or makes you feel horny, which gets you into Twitter jail or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it, it, I, 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 I don't, I'm not trying to figure out these, these people's mindsets in that sense, because honestly, these, the people that don't get it. If you're trying to write any type of slower scene, a quiet scene, 
mm-hmm. vibes scene, if you will, yeah. uh, are not really, these are not the audience for you, right? They, they, they want nope. you to move on to the next thing. Yeah, I've definitely gotten negative feedback. Like, oh, this scene is filler. No, it isn't. It's just a moment to breathe. You know, anything that doesn't rocket you forward is filler. And that's, that's not true. <laughs> that well, is I mean, not yeah, true. I think that that's, you know, that's sort of like if you are just always on the scroll of <laughs> whatever social media, you know, you're being stimulated all the time. So I don't know. It, it, it's very strange. I, I'm not trying to attribute any of this to any one thing. I think it's just a, it's sort a of like mess a weird of things inf- coming together. Yeah. It's like a whole environment that's been created. And the thing that we can definitely point to that does affect uh, weirdly backwards towards novel writing and even short story writing is the Save the Cat structure, which follows that same three-act structure. And honestly, like one of the very few things that I was surprised by is the amount of different types of dramatic structures that that non-Western, even Western. like Even Western uh, in ye olden days. Well, yeah, like Romans like to have a one or two act structure. I think Socrates favored the two act structure. There was three act structure, sure, but Shakespeare was working with five where everyone, the fifth act was everyone got married or there was a giant feast or perhaps both at the same time. Who knows? And granted, I think that part of the issue is that it's it's a weird feedback loop, I feel, that the audiences have been trained to only respond well to a three-act structure, yeah. which then reinforces the people that, that hold the purse strings for, for movies and all sorts of media to then only rely upon three-act structure. But there is one caveat, and this is something really important. We love to talk about Miyazaki, but he's been at it for a while and he's earned the audience's trust as well yeah. as the trust of the people that sort of finance his movies, right? Yeah, no one's going to tr- tell him you can't show someone eating ramen. Yeah, like, exactly. Fuck you. I'm like, Miyazaki. Like, I can show people eating ramen. Yeah, like any one of the advice things that you see in writing, if Stephen King breaks any one of those, quote, rules, it doesn't matter. He's fucking Stephen King. He yeah. can do it. Cause, cause he's, he's been a long enough, he's been in there long enough and has made publishing enough money that they don't care. He could write his laundry list uh, at the beginning and it would not break any rules. Right. It is interesting though, cause I have seen people who get so plot brained that they, it does color the way that they approach other, other narratives that have, I guess, earned the right to deviate. Like there was that one YA author who complained that Tolkien named weapons in his stories. Like why give, why call the sword sting if it's not essential to the plot? Well, it gives you a sense of mood. It suggests this wider world outside the major events of this particular story. I don't know exactly why that sword was named sting. All I know is that someone named it. So it, that sword has been through some shit and that the fact that people know its name means that it's a really special sword yeah, it's funny because that in and of itself shows character because Sting was named by Bilbo. Let me let me put on my 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 the Hobbit nerd hat. Okay. Uh, a minute. So one of the things that is really interesting about that is it misunderstands what Tolkien was trying to do here, right? I I if I remember correctly, they weren't talking about Sting specifically, but let's use Sting as an example because the they find it in the catch of old treasure. 
And there's like a, a sword that Gandalf recognized. Oh, that's Glamdring, which in Elvish means foe hammer. And he sort of tells a, a small line of it was in the battle of such and such city, which denotes this deep, deep time that exists in, in Tolkien's world. And Bilbo finds a little dagger that for him is like a short sword as, you know, as big as a short sword. And he's like, Bilbo being a hobbit and very sort of simple country folk type of archetype almost, he's like, well, I'll call it Sting. It not pretentious. It's just, it reminded him of a bug Sting and that's what he was going to call it. Right. And it shows character. It just shows that Bilbo isn't, isn't aware fully of that deep time and history and blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to call this one Sting. Yeah. Plus, I think it's worth noting that there are weapons in legend that do have names, like the Excalibur. Excalibur was just a guy that Arthur knew. <laughs> no, no, no. Excalibur is a perfect example. There's also, yeah, there's all sorts of named weapons in, in Masamune. myth and legend. And I, yeah. all I know about that is that in, in a JRPG, when you get a sword called the Masamune, you're like, oh, shit, this is really big. This is a big deal. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, isn't that, he's like the master sword fighter. Uh, yeah. He was one, the legendary sword maker or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. Like it's, it's supposed to evoke in this case, a, a different culture and the history behind that. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a weird, <laughs> a weird nitpick to pull out of Tolkien. Like uh, he, he names a sword. How boring. It doesn't like serve it, the plot. Plus, it's, it's, I think it's a lot easier. It's a lot more interesting to read, you know, and then he unsheathed Sting versus, and then he unsheathed his sword. Ah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially when there's yeah. a lot of dudes with swords, you want to distinguish between different swords. Well, and sometimes some, some of those swords are extra special, you know. Yeah, like, special sword. Like, That's cool. If you're a Roman legionnaire, your little short sword that you were given doesn't have a name because it's mass produced. But if you found a relic... It, it better have a name. Come on, man. Yeah. Or if you're some fancy person who could hire the greatest blacksmith in all the land to make you this very special sword that's weighted and structured exactly for your arm, for your hand, then it's like, oh, you're hot shit. You're a big deal. Yeah. 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 I mean, even even in, we're reading over at Podside, we're reading the Book of the New Sun and, and the sword in that one is called Terminus Est, which is the dividing line or here, the point of division, I believe it, uh, it could be interpreted as. And so it's funny because it's a name. Sure. It's a named sword, but it also sort of really plays with the name of the swords points to a bunch of different other instances where it becomes this weird theme where there is a lot of weird doublings and mirrorings in the story that make you wonder. Something I've also seen more recently, and this is for a movie and not a book, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm committing a sin by talking about a movie, is the movie Nope. I've seen mm -hmm. people complain that the Gordy subplot doesn't directly relate to the central plot of Nope. It, it doesn't <laughs> cause the monster exactly, but... I mean, it develops Jupe's backstory so beautifully. It's It fits perfectly with the overall themes about how the entertainment industry expects people to package and sell their trauma, about how there are certain things that really should not be tamed. It, it fits the way marginalized people working in the industry or, or, or child actors are abused like animals or even worse than animals. And 
that scene, the thing that happens to Jupe would not be as as like brutal and heart rendering if you didn't have the Gordy subplot. Mm-hmm. It it yep. would not work as well as it does without the Gordy subplot. Yeah, I mean, I, it it I think one of the other things that it it that it, that is suffusing that that film is the idea that. I said this before that human beings ha- treat animals like objects. Right. Which is weird when you start thinking about like Gordy the chimp or even even the horses at Haywood Hollywood horses. Yes. These are just simply non-human intelligences just yeah. as the eventual the plot driver in this uh, codename Jean, Jean Jacket is as well, right? It's a non-human intelligence, just like any you know any one of the other animals, right? Uh, it's just so weird. It, I, I've also heard about like the um, like imagine them trying to cut that from the movie, which suck. Mm-hmm. It would be well, terrible. I mean, You'd miss so much. Even more granular, I've heard. Why? Why was the shoe standing on it? Who cares? Like, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, sure. It, it's it's a it's. I mean it. It's there for a reason. Would it turn out, oh, yeah, the alien caused the shoe to stand up? Like, what? Well, oh, I mean, <laughs> no, I don't know, no. but I don't, I wasn't thinking about that. I just think, honestly, that is a vibes only shot. Right? And it does, it does strike me as like during really weird, bad, traumatic moments, sometimes you'll notice one kind of weird out of place thing and focus mm-hmm. on it. Like, oh, that guy's, that guy's socks are two different colors. And it's not like, it's just incidental. It's not anything that caused anything else, but it's just a weird little detail that sticks in your head. Yeah. Like, I I mean, and, and that's also ignoring the rest of the rest of Jupe's character who acts as an adult after suffering this just horrifically traumatic event. Uh, He is just not there. He is not, he's gone. He's been gone for a while. Yeah, it's so creepy when you realize, like, through up through up until this point, you've seen him kind of give this wear this sleepy little smile on his face a lot. Mm-hmm. This kind of weird, distant little smile. And there's a moment in the movie where you realize that that smile is actually hiding the fact that he's dissociating and having a tr- flashback to the worst possible memory that a person can have. And you're like, oh fuck, well, oh that's he- not good. Yeah, the the shoe on its end is sort of emblematic of that, right? If you think back to it, it, it st- sort of feels like it's the weird detail, but also it's like a fucking cool shot and it doesn't really yeah. mean anything unless, not unless, but but it even comes back because he has gathered the shoe as part of like his little shrine to, he can only filter his, his present moment. Through Chris through, Kattan. Through an SNL sketch, through like a filter of the shows that he was in it's it's so it's so weird and i feel like if you get sort of if you if you aren't able to navigate what is literal and what is sort of metaphorical or figurative in the imagery that is something that it'll it'll just gum up your gears i feel without it without it the character would just come across as a greedy idiot i think mm-hmm. And yeah. it just would not have the same impact. If Jupe was just, oh, look at this greedy dipshit, it it wouldn't be as heart rendering as it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I feel like, yeah, it gives him a lot of uh, pathos. You sort of feel for him, but you also understand that he's not really a good force in this movie. 
by the end and you're like, oh yeah, he, in a way he, he becomes the actual driver of what ends up being the plot. Yeah. Yeah. It's nope. Nope is good. Go see nope. If you yes, please go see nope. It movie. is amazing. And, and forgive us for talking about a movie when we should be talking about a book, but we're just using a contemporary example of that doesn't totally serve the plot. Maybe not directly in this per in this tidy little way, but like, my God, the, the, the movie would not work the way it does without it. Mm -hmm. So, well, I mean, to, to, if we can talk a little bit about the, how that, that is structured as well, because I mean, let's face it, we're talking about movies, which you know, are, are sort of an extension of drama that predate novels as well. So the, the, I think that the, the thing here is that also part of the fun question mark of Nope is that a lot of the scenes don't exactly line up. I think one of the first scenes where he's taking Otis Sr. to the hospital, you see the x-ray and then you see a baggie with a nickel in it. And uh, imagine, if you will, just use this as, a, as, as an exercise. Imagine, if you will, if someone in production or one of the executives had gotten a little bit nervous. He's like, well, you got to explain exactly what happened. And we would have had an entire scene where somebody hands OJ the baggie with the nickel in it and trying to explain. In the exactly. climax, he like flicks the nickel into, <laughs> into the mouth of the monster or something and kills and he'd it. Have, well, he'd have, a, uh, he'd, have, he'd have to have a quip too because he'd yeah, flip it yeah, yeah. and that would, that would be the thing that, that would kill it. And then he'd have to have a nickel for your thoughts, motherfucker, you know, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> no oh god oh, could you imagine fuck. and then uh, he'd walk away from from the explosion yeah in slow motion and back. he like wouldn't look behind himself because yes. cool guys don't look at explosions yes um <laughs> god damn. you know i i hate that i that i figured out how to make this like an action flick. oh no oh no anyway the step, step away from the lathe of heaven <laughs> step away Ugh. but but let's uh step away from nope for a moment and talk about another way that that excessive plot focus can damage your writing and is that it flattens all narrative art into a plot delivery system and that means you neglect craft mm -hmm. like we've seen a lot of very bad discourse a lot of very questionable takes about how to be a writer, you don't really need to read in order to write <laughs> no, fiction. No, no, Raquel, don't, get canceled. don't do it. <laughs> you can just watch movies or play video games or watch Let's Plays because those also have narratives and plots. And that's all you need is plot. That's all you need is plot. Other media can give you story ideas. So that's all you need to write books. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> While other media can maybe give you story ideas, and, and that's true, you can absolutely take inspiration from video games. It's not going to show you how to craft an elegant sentence or how to write a really vivid description. These are features unique to prose, and in order to get good at them, you need to engage with prose, whether that's reading a book or listening to audiobooks. Those, that's totally fine. That's a perfectly valid way to to read a book but these are features unique to prose and video games don't have that because it's a different medium well and and so 
I, I sometimes go back and forth on this because yes, I do agree that you do need to read. You absolutely need to read. Let's be clear here. There, there is an old adage about, what was it? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. And it's not that you should go plagiarize, but you go in and, and look and, and I'll, I'll tell you one instance where I needed to write, I wanted to write how a goat's eyes looked. Hmm. Yeah, because they went, have that weird rectangular pupil. Yeah, like a slotted eye, right? And I went back to, of all things, a Wizard of Earthsea because Ursula huh. K. Le Guin has that, has an interesting little scene where the main character, I forget what his name is at that point, but who will become Ged, the great archmage, basically swipes like a little charm that his aunt has, is, has used to bring, bring the goats in. To herd the goats, and, and they, they usually come when, when they're called and, and put themselves in the pen and all that good stuff. But he's, he apparently is so powerful and doesn't know how to use the charm well enough that the goats just sort of like crowd him all the time. Like he's surrounded, <laughs> chased around by a herd of goats, which is really sort of uncanny because she describes them like looking at him and eyeing him with those slotted eyes. It's a really vivid and almost, almost like a horror moment because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at a goat or had a goat look they're at you. They're a little but weird. They have yeah, weird faces. Yeah, yeah. And so I went there and I was like, oh, that's okay. So that's how she described it. And I, I used that description. You know, I just said, you know, he had slotted eyes, whatever. And that's a perfect example of why sometimes you, you do want to read. You, you need to read if you want to also, as you said, be able to model a good sentence structure or know how to sort of break up sentences for, for different reasons. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. You get these the, wonderful like, turns of phrase that you can borrow. Like it's impossible to read Homer without deciding. I'm going to use the phrase "wine dark sea" somewhere. Uh, I'm going to use it. <laughs> was it Dawn? Dawn painted the sky with her rosy fingertips, or something like that. Is another one right. that uh, he uses a lot. These are all very, very vivid images. Yes, yeah, great imagery. It, there's a reason that the translations have captured those those phrases throughout time because Homer is he's been dead and canceled in the ground for you know nigh on four thousand years. years. <laughs> I might be I might be off by a couple thousand, but it doesn't matter. He's been dead for a long time. Yeah. I think that it's it also teaches you how to deviate from this three act structure to insert moments of that that are needless, right? Let's go back to <laughs> Strunk and White. They're needless. But you know what? All of these words are needless. You don't need to write them. Yeah. Your you book is not necessary, probably. Yes. In the grand scheme of things. Not even mine are needed. <laughs> like, yeah. I, this isn't a dig against anyone specific. It's just simply that even my stories are not needed. I want to write them. And I feel like that that's the thing that there is this weird unbalanced aspect of it where you feel like you need to rewrite these things and therefore you need to follow these rules because that's how you're going to get your message out there, your capital M message out there. Right. Your message. Good. I mean, it's, it, what, what, who was it that said, you know, if we want to send a message, get Western Union, 
I forget who it says. I was like, yeah, it's not wrong. It's a little harsh, but yeah, not wrong. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that that's part of why you need to read too. Is when when you start looking at a book or a story as merely a plot delivery system, you're you're missing out so much of what is special about fiction. And 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 I think this all ties to the way that we've started referring to art as content as well. Mm-hmm. It's just this flattening of everything, this ignoring everything that makes every particular medium interesting or unique or special or powerful. And, and I I dislike the idea of calling yourself a content creator when you're making art. Like content creator, I, I'd say a Let's Player is a content creator, and I'm mm-hmm. not trying to be a bitch about that. But yeah, I feel like that's a fair dividing line, which which isn't really a division. You're still doing something, like you're creating something, yeah. but it is derivative of something else. And yeah, like like a Let's Play or a step by step game videos or what have you of that of that of that nature hell even like book talk and 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 youtube youtube reviewers and stuff like that i would also probably categorize as as very close to i would say that reviews actually are an art form in of themselves but it depends i i suppose you'd you you'd have to check and see which reviewers feel like content and which ones don't or are closer to the content versus art spectrum if you will yeah, no kidding. And I probably sound snobby. Yeah, chill. Stop attacking my chair, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, he's he's throwing a little tantrum. <laughs> Maybe I sound naive, but I do believe in the concept of artistic integrity. I, I do think there's something that could be considered almost spiritual, for lack of a better word, about art. And the idea of art versus content. Con- the, we use the word content because it's a very online word. And it's because... Companies like Facebook will create an online space for profit, and it needs users to fill in that space with stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's called content. It's an idea, it's an approach of your art as like, the art isn't for you, it's for Mark Zuckerberg, it's for Jack What's-His-Face, the fucking Twitter guy, because you are filling in a hole in his platform and you putting pl- content there makes this work profitable. So it's not really for you versus if you're making art, that's for you. Even if you never posted anywhere, even if you never shared somewhere, you've made this. You didn't make it to fill a hole for some like Silicon Valley dickhead. You made this because this is something you wanted to make. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably even say you've already said some of it there but i would just say very simply i think content is to is basically the corporatization what a corporatization of art would would sound like right yeah it is, in fact, as you were talking about, like fill in the space and blah, blah. I was thinking about the slop. Slop mm-hmm. can fill in the space just as well as a fine, I don't know, a T-bone steak or something. You know, something very nice. I, I don't know. Right. I, I haven't gone out in a long time, folks. I'm sorry. Right. Maybe a pate, but that's that's not. I'm going to get canceled for, for wanting cruelty to geese or whatever. Yeah. Even though that they 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 they. they they can only see the world in violence. Um, <laughs> yeah, geese are assholes. Yes. There's an entire video game about it. <laughs> it is a beautiful day in the village and you are a it terrible is, goose. It is an untitled game, is all I'll say. <laughs> but yeah, it's weird because it it 
I, I don't, I don't want to get too, too much into mythologizing like, oh, language can affect how you think, but over time, yeah, maybe if you are creating art and you start really considering it content, you know, what in and of itself, what content means and what sells, because I, I don't think it's the word itself. It's the, the word with the influence of profit and making money, because let's face it, we all need to eat and yeah, pay yeah. bills and keep a roof over our head, you know, so no, no shade. I get it. Yeah. But also, you know, like if, if an artist just leans into the idea behind content, then they may end up making more content than, than art, you know? Right. Right. Which can be artistic, but it's generally, it's just very, doesn't take any risks. I mean, it's, yeah. we have 20 years of MCU movies for that. So Yeah. And, and something I'm going to point out too, is that it's extremely rare for a content creator to actually make a living off of that or for an artist to actually make a living off of it. So while I understand the impulse to try to sell out, if that's what you call it, probably no one's buying anyway. So I kind of yeah. take the approach of like, no one's buying, no one's buying. And and I know there's been discourse about, oh, it's privileged to, to sneer at selling out. Well, corporations are more likely to buy what you're selling if you're like a cishet white male anyway. So selling out is easier for people of privilege anyway. So like saying, oh, it's a privileged idea to sneer at selling out. Nah, selling out's easier if you're privileged in the first place. Like Logan Paul or something or, or PewDiePie. These are white blonde dudes. I mean I, I would argue it's easier for them to sell out than it is going to be for somebody who's like marginalized. Yeah. I, I, I would also not argue, but add being, being a Gen X type of guy myself, I feel like the only person that successfully sold out is Kevin Smith. <laughs> so the rest of Gen X could go get fucked. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was, and, and that's not me saying that that's capitalism saying, well, fuck you. Cause, cause the, the, the phrase selling out was like such a hilariously. Yeah. It was such a like, Gen X thing. I'll never sell out. And yeah. Like, and and, and, and I know in the real world, we live under capitalism and we've got to negotiate with that. We're not going to be perfect. Nobody's going to be fucking perfect about that. But, but yeah. I do think there is a line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that there is, there, I think it, it, it can vary from person to person because honestly, like sometimes you don't want to give, you don't want to give an inch and that's a negotiation you got to make as, you know, it, it, it is in flux and very, I would say very much based on an individual creator's comfort with the concept of, I mean, whatever laughable concept there is behind yeah, selling whatever out. you're making and, and your relationship to it. Like, would you accuse Jim Davis of selling out? Well, it's Garfield. It's not this deep thing. Who cares? Well, he, he also, he also set out to yeah, sell out. Blatantly like, said, I'm going to make as much money on this as possible, which I mean, yeah, the, fair enough. The, he succeeded. Fair, yeah. I mean, the other, the other end is the, the Chad Bill Waterson where he's Hell like, yeah. yeah, I don't want any fucking merchandising. Also, you know what? I, I, I ran out of things to say, I'm going to go away now. Still in fucking syndication, still selling probably thousands of, of his comic books a month, if not a week. Yeah. It's amazing. Absolute Chad. <laughs> um, Incredible. Yeah. God, he could have made so much money if he was selling little Hobbs plushies. He could he, have. He could it's have, crazy but, yeah. to think of how much money he could have made. And he just very consciously knowing how much he could make off of it said, nah, 
And if I'm not mistaken, like he had an advertising background, like he was, he was doing graphic design for advertising and stuff like that. So, so I do believe that, that he probably knew exactly what he was walking away from, but also, uh, you know, after a while that, that, that creation of his would have become like basically an albatross dragging him down. He couldn't have continued living life. Yeah. Good. Good for him. He's out there learning how to oil paint or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Probably selling those little prints for 300 bucks a pop or more. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Just vibing. Good for him. <laughs> Which, yeah, like absolutely. The patron saint of vibes only out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe this is probably personal. And, and I, and if somebody's like fucking poor as shit, I, I can't tell them what to do. My, all I can say is here's what's my own approach is my own mindset is in terms of me, I don't think I could sell out, not, not necessarily in terms of spirituality, but in terms of like, I don't think anyone's going to buy. So <laughs> my approach is why try to sell out when no one's going to buy? So I'd rather make something that I find personally, um, personally very satisfying mm-hmm. rather, rather than most of us who are going to try to do the song and dance, please, please buy me, please Casper mattresses sponsor our podcast. It's probably not going to succeed anyway. Yeah. And to me, there's something really, really sad about aspiring to be a corporate spokesman and not even getting that. Yeah. I mean, it's also to, to your point about selling out versus who's it's a buyer's market and no one's buying that whole antitrust against the, the penguin random house merger. There are people way more marketable than me. So (laughs) absolutely. I mean, but, but that also is sort of, see the funny thing here is that as I saw a lot of people gnashing their teeth about like, oh, those spaces that they sold to whomever, you know, like Jamila Jamil or whatever, her her memoir, that could have been given to somebody else more marginalized. And you're like, they weren't going to do that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They're not going to do that because they know that that's a celebrity memoir and that's going to, that's going to put X amount of dollars at the bottom line, they're not going to risk it on you. And and there's perfectly valid ways, valid and very legal ways for publishing to screw you specifically over that, that have nothing. People were gnashing their teeth about that and, and not understanding that. Yeah. That just shows you that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. That everyone that has been following publishing for a while knows that people don't know how to sell books. It's just, yeah, you don't know. Yeah, you, they really don't. It's kind of amazing. It is. So I mean, you know, like, like this like is you your said, job. This is you had one job. But I think literally that, you had one job. I think that that's also that's that it's a weird vice, right? Be squeezing the the market towards specifically one thing that they know does actually sell in certain circumstances, which is that that plot-driven 3X structure. They're rushing towards it even faster because even though it hasn't really sold as well as they expected, that's the one thing they know will sell. So let's double down on that. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very strange. It's very strange. It, it, it is a sort of almost counterintuitive thing that, that publishing does. And so to your point, yeah, like they don't know how to sell your book. So just write the book you want to write anyway. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears and talk about what's a better approach to fiction. What's a better approach to plot? Well, vibes. No plot, only vibes. (laughs) 
But by vibes, we mean focusing on atmosphere, focus on emotion. Uh, I, I guess here would be a good place to insert my uh, an idea I have floating in my head of the idea of fat books versus bloated books. Mm. People talk mm -hmm. about trimming the fat of books. I don't think you should trim the fat out of books. I think you should remove the bloat from books. And there's a difference. Like a fat book is like a big, sprawling, broad book that maybe a book that watches a family across several generations and gives detailed genealogies of all the characters and like, hey, let's stop for a very detailed feasting scene and have some philosophical musings. Like to me, that's a fat book. And I love that it's, shit. That's, uh, Versus uh, a, a bloated book, which is like, yeah. let's jam in lots of really shitty banter. Or, or I mean, so, so the, I think that the parallel to that in a bloated book would be a book that has 50 characters and there's the main plot, and, but there's got to be like at least six or seven other subplots in it. Yeah. You're like, does it though? Does it? Yeah. Because honestly, I am fine with following like the Buendia family in a hundred years of solitude. That's a generational, sprawling generational book that spans obviously a century. The Michener books, those are those used to be everywhere for a while and they've gone away. You remember the the ones where he'd start out in prehistory, Hawaii. <laughs> You're like, he's writing about volcanoes right now at the beginning. That's weird. Yeah. I love it, that shit. I love like I mean, big it, fat books, big fat books it, rock. <laughs> I mean, it, it's great. It's great because it does give you like this weird God's eye view of this entire story. Right. But it also, the parody version of it is from adaptation, right? Where he's like, <laughs> oh, we got to start at the beginning. Yeah. The dinosaurs. And you're like, no, no, dude. <laughs> adaptation is closer. perfect. That movie, that movie starring Nicolas Cage adaptation. It's about a screenwriter who's been tasked. It's a Charlie Kaufman movie, was it? Um, well, the, I, it, sure. the, I think it's a, it's a perfect movie yeah, for this podcast. For this because podcast, because one's been... a vibes a vibe screenwriter, and the other one's a plot screenwriter, and his brother is just so much better at writing screenplays. And he has a great time, and he makes tons of movies, and everybody loves him. Girls like him, <laughs> and the vibes based screenwriter hates himself. Everybody hates him, and he's tasked with adapting this book, this nonfiction book called The Orchid Thief. And it's a very vibes book. And it's a, a nice sprawling fat book. And it's beautiful and lyrical based on the excerpts we give. But it doesn't make for a good Hollywood screenplay because you need something very strictly plot driven. So by the by the end of it, he's adapted this move, this novel that's just about someone unsuccessfully hunting for the ghost orchid and turned it into this a thriller where our journalist is a sex crazed plant junkie willing to kill to get her next fix. But that, <laughs> that's after they, after they visited a McKee masterclass and he invites him for a drink. And it's so funny because that's the moment that you realize that the, the movie's going full meta. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, because remember he says, uh, and God help you if you use voiceover. And by the end, he's going, you, fuck, I'm using voiceover. God I'm damn it. Fucking shit. Using but I mean, it's great because it, it does offer like that synthesis at the end of how you can start off with a sort of vibesy type of approach to storytelling and still integrate <laughs> very plot stuff, an action plot type of thing onto it's the end. It's so good. It's, it's such so a great, great movie. It's ridiculous. I loved it.
But yeah, a, a different approach to to writing, not so much plot, but vibes, character studies. There are a lot of novels that aren't exactly fast paced, but instead it's an examination of of somebody's inner character and they're extremely compelling. You yeah. you can tell stories that are kind of episodic where the events don't all add up to one single climax. Oh, I have I have I love great... those. That's the good oh. shit. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, I believe the first instance of this is the picaresque which is originally from Spain. I believe the first one of the first you know like modern what we would call a modern novel is a picaresque which is the Lazarillo de Tormes and his fortunes or something to that effect. It's basically he is navigating Spanish culture, right? He starts off as a beggar he is, he helps a blind beggar and, and he moves up, right? He then starts serving a priest. He's a squire, a friar, a pardoner and a chaplain. And then an archpriest, I guess like a, a bishop or something. In any case, the point being that the picaresque offers a character study, but no character growth. The Lazarillo yeah. doesn't learn a goddamn thing other than each one of the people that he served was a different type of asshole towards him. That's exactly, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Like the, even the blind, the, the blind beggar starves him, hoards food for himself. In one instance, the, uh, the Lazarillo stole like a little bit of bread. He, he found out where, where the, the blind guy had, had hit it and he stole the bread because he's like fucking starving. He ate it and he gets that blind guy beat the shit out of him, oh knocked God. his head against the, the wall and just stomped him a little bit. Jesus. It, it's, it's, it's really brutal. But I mean, like the Lazarillo is basically, he's, he's a beggar himself. So he's the lowest of the low in the societal ladder. And it just shows that he, at the end of it, he is a little bit richer, but he's not by any means wealthy or anything like that. But basically it's just, it's weird because it is offering like this weird world building by showing you how it was to serve under these different people and teaching you about the social strata of Spain at the time, which is the, the 16th century. That sounds great. It's, 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 it's also like really short. It's only got like, you know, like seven chapters to it. It's really short. Yeah. It's very short. Yes. That sounds um, good. See also Don Quixote. Does mm. Don Quixote learn a goddamn thing in, the, <laughs> no. in those 800 plus pages? Absolutely not. And, and often he's, 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 he's as often right about things in spirit as he is wrong. <laughs> yeah. I do find that so interesting about Don Quixote because obviously Cervantes was dunking on the guy and making fun of romantic stories. But I've seen so many interpretations where Don Quixote, even though he's very clearly a crazy man, still is kind of the hero because well, like I mean, the rational modern world is so shitty. Well, I mean, think of the, the, the stereotypical, Oh, he's tilting at windmills because he thinks they're giants. Well, let's think about the, let's think a moment about what's not said here about what the world was like. And this is specifically Don Quixote's happening in that shift, right. From sort of the, the feudalism of, of ancient, not ancient, but olden times to the sort of like the, like the, the, the cities and the trades bourgeoisie taking over most of society, right? 
These are now the moneyed people. They're now in control. And what, you know, just like the Luddites are mis misunderstood because, oh, they, <laughs> they're against technologies. Like, no, he, they understood that labor would be affected by the loom. And just, just as that is the, the, the concept, Don Quixote is, even though he is delusional, he understands, he identifies who the real culprit of this change is. It is nothing other than industry, which started with milling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that you need to sort of know a little bit about for it to be a little bit more than, I don't know. It, it's not that it's doesn't be, it doesn't change from vibes to something else. It's just simply that it, it's not trying to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to an earlier point you were making about the commodification of the artists themselves as part of the selling out process. So some other stories that we love that don't obsess over plot or don't obsess over this particular type of plot structure. If you try to describe the plot of Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata <laughs> to someone, it sounds like the worst book ever, but it's fucking amazing because it has all these funny observations about society, about gender roles and modernity and sexuality and utilitarianism. I mean, it, it, from what I've heard, I, I, I sadly have not picked it up yet, but oh, it's great. Heard, yeah, I've, from what I've heard from you and 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 other people have read it, it is it is very funny in a not. It's not trying to be a comedy, but just very funny because I believe that the the main character is just just sees the world from like almost from a sideways angle. Yeah, it's just not really. Not really jiving with what with what what the world is like, and she's she's finding her own path somehow, and it leads to a convenience store. Yeah, it it's fantastic. Maybe maybe one of the classic and very little plot, mainly vibes. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Mm. There's very little that happens. A woman throws a garden party, and at one point, a man commits suicide, but it's really not connected to the garden party at all and the book is entirely about people's inner lives and about this woman mrs dalloway looking over the course of her life she's like 50 and she's looking back at the course of the life she's lived and thinking about like my choices led me here did i really make all the right decisions in some ways and and there's these people who've loved each other for decades but for whatever reason didn't end up together and there and it's regrets and and it's a beautiful novel. It's just mapping the the inner landscapes of this small community. And there's barely a plot. Right. She she buys some flowers, she plans the garden party, and the garden party goes over goes off really well, and that's it. Well, Raquel, you know, I'm I'm gonna express a little bit of skepticism because we all know that these literary novels, all they all they're ever about is about a, a professor, a white professor trying <laughs> to nail his female students. I mean, and they're we, very cishet. Virginia Woolf, famously cisgender heterosexual <laughs> Virginia Woolf. For real though, I was astonished reading the book about how upfront it was about queerness. Like hmm. Mrs. Dalloway is a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't use the word lesbian, but it basically says a certain virginity had always followed her. And 
like she and her husband, I think, have a kid, but there's not much of a relationship between them, very little in terms of sexuality, but she was very much in love with her friend Sally. And it's very overt about the fact that she was in love with her friend Sally. And that's the real love of her life. And I was like astonished to read that. Maybe audiences of 19, was it, what was it, like 1918? It was the early 20th century when this was written, interpreted it a different way. But I read it and I'm like, holy shit, this, this character is a lesbian. Right. Like really, right. really, really overtly. Yeah, I mean, it's it is it is sort of really funny to run up against some of that stuff where you're not expecting it. I was expecting metaphor and shit. I was not expecting it to be as open as it was. Right. Another perfectly great vibes only book for for at least I would say the the first half if not the first 3 quarters is Moby Dick. Hell yeah. Speaking of, <laughs> very overtly queer. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, with, with Ishmael Incredibly and Incredibly gay book. Amazingly. Not to mention just, just full of the most sicko shit you can imagine sometimes, where it's like, what, what was it? The, there's the- The dude falls there, into the whale and has to be like cesarean sectioned out. Jesus. The dudes that are like pounding the, the sperm, the, the fatty tissue out of the sperm whale. Yeah. It uh, is just, it is blatantly a circle jerk on the, the, on the deck of the, just squeezing yeah. this frothy white substance in a circle and gazing longingly at each other's hands. <laughs> the, the dude that, that basically made a cloak out of basically the whale's foreskin. You know, it's just full of all sorts of sicko shit that is amazing. And then weirdly, I don't know what, what, what exactly happened, but Melville goes, oh yeah, I should. Uh, oh yeah, should, there's that whale. I, sh I should have an adventure story in the back half of this of this book. And, and the rest of it is honestly wall-to-wall -wall action, basically, because they are chasing fucking Moby Dick across the Pacific. It becomes like a chase scene. But it's 90% vibes up to that point. 90% oh, yeah. gay vibes. It's really good. What was the other one? I was just going to... Oh, not to get into old discourse again, but wouldn't you say Catcher in the Rye is very much a vibes? A lot of vibes. There's not... Ex like this... It's a kid who wanders around, really. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's both. I think it's mostly a character study and a and sort of like a a a somewhat turned on its head buildings Roman coming of age story. But he's afraid of coming of age because like because manhood means being a douche. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it's it's essentially every male figure in his in the the book is basically just horrible. It's just you know, predatorial. Yeah, yeah. Like just, ninety percent of them are rapists of one one variety or another. Yeah, sexual assault. All yeah. Let's just do it some light sexual assault because I'm your your gym coach or whatever. He's like, mm, no, how about not? Yeah, like they're all terrible, and so it's like I don't I don't want to be a man. Being a man is terrible. This blows. <laughs> right, right, and and the central sort of image and metaphor of the book is very vibes. It's not. It's almost like a dream sequence. This idea of that there's someone out in the rye that's going to catch you if you fall fall over the cliff into adulthood and man. In his case, manhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. It's. It, I. I think that Holden Caulfield is vibes mostly for a long and partly because it, it fits the 
sort of the, the structure and the character, right? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's wandering about. And therefore I wonder if the fact that he doesn't really better himself, <laughs> he doesn't really no. solve anything. He has a full on uh, psychotic break from reality and ends up in a mental hospital and, and he's talking to the doctors, but it's not like, hooray, therapy has been successful. Mm -hmm. Right. Like he, he very clearly does not have much respect for the doctor he's talking to. I, I, I do think, I do wonder, is that fact that it's not, it doesn't end with a triumphal no. note, what makes people really viscerally hate the book when in fact it's, it's really sort of like a, it's almost tragedy. He's never going to fix anything. And yeah. what, what lies ahead, he feels, is nothing but him breaking shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think Kate Chopin's story of an hour. It's mm -hmm. one of those stories we're required to read in AP English Lit. It, it's very much internal. There's not exactly a plot. A woman finds out that her husband was killed in an accident. And over the, over the course of an hour, she goes from grief to this feeling of liberation. Because at the time, a woman didn't have any kind of freedom until widowhood. Mm -hmm. And then she finds out that her husband is actually alive. And she dies of heartbreak. Because she's like, fuck, I could have been free. And that's it. It's not this like plot driven story. It's really philosophical. And it's this internal story about the status of women, the social status of women at the time. Yeah. yeah I could see that. And it's tragic too, because her husband's not even like a bad guy. Her husband is not portrayed as abusive or cruel. It's just the way society is set up at the time is that if you are a married woman, you're your husband's property. You don't have independence. You don't have freedom. You know, you can't open your own bank account. You can't own your own property. And like that sucks. Even if the guy you're, you're stuck to is a, is a decent guy, that still fucking sucks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Because women owning their own bank account. I, I, I was shocked to find out that that wasn't actually something that you could do in the U S until was it 74? Yeah. Like the sixties or seventies crazy recently. It's really wild and and to to a certain extent I think a lot about these about these people men that were in in, in marriages before that that came about like you're saying I feel like they probably didn't want that to be a thing. They would have preferred if their their wife. Maybe some of them didn't, but you know, I'm going to guess a lot of them that had healthy <laughs> relationships with their wives yeah. wanted them to have a bank account. Wanted them to have some yeah. sort of or, or they knew something them. was wrong, but couldn't quite understand why. Mm -hmm. Right, because right. maybe they hadn't heard like like because if you look at 1950s literature written by men, it's usually I I can't stand my wife and children. I feel suffocated. And there's not an understanding as to why, like maybe if women had more legal status, I, I wouldn't feel suffocated. But but I think intuitively they knew something about this sucks. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of them channeled that toward like, oh, my wife's a bitch. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, uh, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, because let's face it, this is a culture that that loves to pin pin the blame for a systemic issue on an individual that that's how right it sort of, yeah and so so when i get home jesus my wife will not stop jabbering at me i haven't thought to myself walking in the door that my wife has been alone for probably eight plus hours of her day maybe only talking either to an either, infant to an infant who is not capable of real speech 
not not on, not on a peer to peer level at least, or just watching the most mind rotting daytime television. And so she's coming to yammer at me. Jesus Christ, can I get a moment alone? Which is, you can understand it. It's not nice. Yeah, you want to decompress after work, probably. But yeah, but but you you can understand where where it's coming from. But then you start the problem starts becoming that 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 becomes who you pin the blame on, not these unseen inchoate problems that exist in the system. Right, right. It it becomes like, ugh, my wife sucks, and not like, hey, maybe the nuclear family was a really bad idea. <laughs> This is not working. We're both fucking right. miserable. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think that's one of the really fascinating aspects of Mad Men that that shows you, like Don Don Draper is not a good person. No, but but because he's, it's almost expected of him. He has some house out in the fucking boonies, some suburbs in Connecticut, because that's what that's everyone what you knows. do. Yeah, that's what you do if you work in on Saxon Fifth Avenue or whatever, right? If you're part of that that highfalutin executive crew and there's that scene where betty just turns on him and and it shows to a certain extent how unprepared betty is and perhaps to a certain extent has been stunted in her development where she's like she she thinks that the children are against her like it's a mutiny and you're like no they're children they cannot really do much of anything to you but but she feels accosted by them whenever she's alone for extended periods of time and don's not there because don is off screwing whoever he feels like he's not again folks he's not a good person he's not a great guy but also madman not not to invoke the dreaded tv show or movie again but (laughs) madman is a perfect example of a very vibes oriented type of show where he you're you're invited to do this character study for what is it seven seven point five seasons or something and he, like that. And in the end he doesn't learn anything. God damn he doesn't He learns nothing. He's the why, same fucking person. Why would he? He it, all that bullshit that he's done has proved successful. Why should he learn from that? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's so good. Ugh. I love it. So let's see. Uh you suggested Axolotl. By Julio yeah. Cortazar as as another very vibes based story, and that's a story that we covered in a previous book club edition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's a very internal. Uh, it's it's it happens in one place at the uh, I forget the correct name of it, but it's like one of at the, the um, zoo. yeah, it's at the zoo in in Paris, and basically he's looking at an axolotl through the glass. It's a story about him internalizing how he's an alien. Like he feels alienated and weird and not part of, like he feels like he's under glass yeah. uh, in Paris and how the axolotl is a kindred spirit and eventually becomes a story about sort of like transformation or transmutation even. Yeah. It, it's very strange and, and, and it's very short too. It's, but oh, it's, yeah, it's a quick one. Yeah. It, but it packs so much into that short space. It's so good. Yeah. Do we want to do one more example or do we want to wrap it up? Just because I'm anxious oh, that can... Zencaster might fart out on me again. <laughs> you this mean the is... one time we're recording, Raquel? <laughs> the one time we're recording in one single recording session because yeah. Zencaster's working extremely well today. I mean, uh, I think you'd mentioned Ted. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I, I think you'd mentioned Ted Chang. And I would, 
you, know, you, you I think you had noted tower, the Tower of Babylon. Tower of Babylon. Yeah, it has but, this unusual plot structure that that falls more into the way that Babylonian stories were told, and not mm-hmm. so much the way that modern three act structure works. And it is I mean, extraordinary. I would, I would probably say that a lot of his work in general is very vibes very vibes based. Yes, it's very like even a story, uh, the complete story of you or, or whatever became a rival. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the story, story of your life, I think. The story of your life, yes. You know, uh, that and she's uh, I'm trying to remember the 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 merchant in the alchemist gate is also a great one. I don't think I know that one. It's it's that one's really cool. It's sort of like uh, Ted Chang's riff on on Shazerazad or something to that effect, but shorter, much shorter. Nice. But anyway, yeah, like I think that there's a lot of that type of writing out there. It's just you have to sort of look for it because it's not the stuff that I feel like a lot of people talk about, at least in my in my corner of genre. I don't feel like the stuff that gets buzz is a lot of that vibes based stuff. It's it's stuff yeah. that it needs to happen. You, know, you got to have action or whatever. I think you know, people like, buzz it, but they don't understand why. They'll they'll buzz it and they'll fall in love with it and then they'll scold you if if you write that way, <laughs> like you're not supposed to do it. Like oh okay okay fuck yeah you. yeah <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. that old saying about that. This attributed to Picasso. I don't know if it's true or not, but him saying that he he had to uh, was it learn how to to paint like Raphael for X amount of years before he could figure out how to paint like a four year old. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is funny because he's just dunking on his own cubism or whatever but uh, <laughs> but it is funny because it's he's not wrong he he's pointing out that you need to know sort of back to front what the what the rules are so that you can sort of mess with them uh, yeah. perhaps break them on occasion bend them at the very least often right right so in conclusion don't worry about plot as much Vibe, vibe, write a big fat story. <laughs> yeah. Give us, give us quiet character moments. Give us people staring out windows and thinking yeah. about what the fuck is, what the fuck is going on and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. I give us know. lovingly detailed descriptions of food. Hell yeah. Fucking do it. And, and, and not just they ate food. I think you'd made this point before, <clears throat> Raquel. Give us specific foods. It tells us something too. And, and there's just this wonderful sensory experience in it. Like mm-hmm. when I was reading, we have always lived in the castle and reading that book made me want a soft boiled egg with a piece of toast more than anything else mm. in the world. Because over and over and over again, she talks about, I think Mary Cat ate a soft boiled egg with a piece of toast. And it sounded like the most wonderful thing in the world and reading it. I'm like, I have to go make a soft boiled egg right fucking now. I got, I got, I've got to make a soft boiled egg for myself. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Yeah, that, that 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 yeah, it 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 sort of turns on that. Oh yeah, the unctuousness of like a weird, sort of dippy uh, yolk of an egg on toast. Yeah, you know what? I'm making myself hungry. I'm gonna go make myself. Yeah, I, I had I had toast. to go out and make eggs on toast. I had to go make myself some <laughs> some runny eggs on toast. Hell yeah! While reading that book. <laughs> well, folks, now we're gonna finish this one out making you hungry. So sorry, <laughs> sorry. Go, go eat some eggs. Sorry, vegans. <laughs> but before we go, where can our listeners find and support your work? So I run a podcast ball called Pideside Picnic, where we discuss science fiction, fantasy, and the literature of the fantastic. I have three co-hosts, Pete, Kurt, and, and Chris. And we love to discuss fiction, 
novels, movies, whatever strikes our fancy, really. We recently finished like a, an Augusta Geddon uh, episode month, I should say, where we just did a bunch of reviews and and, and talked about movies and, and, and media that dealt with post-apocalyptic stuff. We probably will be doing a Die November. Hell so, yeah. So if you're interested in talking about dinosaurs of different stripes, we will probably be covering a little bit about that in November. Mark your calendars and get your Patreon clicks ready. Also, yeah, also I have my own personal website, uh, alignofink.com. I generally have some some of my my bibliography and, and previous fiction written there. And you'll find my fiction there as well. So uh, I'm, oh, Jesus, I forgot about this almost. I am also now recently the nonfiction editor over at Seize the Press magazine. Hell yeah. So if you have some sort of pitch that is anti-capitalist, that deals with dark, dark fantasy, cyberpunk, horror, you you name it. As long as it's it's genre and it's anti-capitalist, send me a pitch. I'd be interested. This includes even book reviews. So if you have a book review, something recent that you read that you thought fits the bill, talk to me about it. It's uh, carlo at seizethepress.com. Great. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks for talking to me and thanks for enduring Zencaster's quirks today. <laughs> well, you know, uh, or, Zencaster, or possibly my internet connection. It might be because yeah, I have spectrum and it's I terrible. Mean, yeah. I mean, Zencaster is, uh, was duly named for today because you needed to practice a lot of Zen yeah. to get through it. So it may well uh, just be spectrum because spectrum is, <laughs> spectrum is really, really fucking bad. <laughs> Sorry about your, your internet connection. Though. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining. So the internet doesn't work very well. It's a very, very good company oh, so, that I've got here. So, so it's, so they're running it through an F-35? Uh, Apparently so. <laughs> it and the F-35 don't work in rain. Okay. Uh, right. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Raquel. And thanks, everyone. Catch you next time. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>